My name is Daryl. If, if I haven't met you before, I serve as a deacon here on the north side, and I'm really happy, uh, a little nervous, and happy to be here with you guys, uh, to be able to share what God's been teaching me through the prophet Jeremiah, which is what we're going to be focusing on today. Um, so I grew up in a Christian home uh, my whole life. Anyone else here? It, it's good if you didn't too, but is anyone else here growing up in that environment, like around church stuff? Churchy stuff, cool. So I've done it my entire life. Um, anytime a door was open, my family was there at church. Um, it's my earliest memories, if I look back and kind of remember where that started. I can remember being a little kid and having my mom drop me off at the children's room. And it was, you know, very traumatic. <laughs> and I could see her going away. It's the slow motion, like hands pulling apart. And then the, the tears that would flow. So when I hear your kids crying back there when you're leaving, it triggers me. Uh, I feel these like, I remember these moments of being dropped off at church and it was stressful. So when I was six or seven, um, fast forward a little bit, I remember, grew up in, outside of Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. I was on a staircase, really shaggy, thick green carpet. And I remember kneeling on, the, on those stairs and asking the Lord to come into my life, praying that prayer over and over and over because I didn't feel anything. And I kept saying like, oh, I wanna be different. And I didn't feel anything different. Um, fast forward to my teens, little angst sets in. Um, probably eighth or ninth grade, um, I went through the, when I grow up, I'm never going to make my kids go to church phase with my parents, um, you know, fighting and yelling. If you have teenagers and you probably have been through this maybe once or twice, uh, my kids will always go. They don't really have a choice. Uh, so, um, but I went through that phase. And then came the summer after my, my, my ninth grade year. It was a very pivotal moment in my life. Um, my youth group went on a summer camp. We went to luxurious Cincinnati, Ohio, just outside of Cincinnati. It's not luxurious. And we went there to go to this camp, and it was a camp to get us ready to go back to school. So it was like, uh, get a bunch of kids together and send them back to school radically saved uh, to use some 90s Christian lingo. And this was called boot camp. So it was, boot camp was the name of it, and as you can imagine, it had kind of a military theme. <laughs> so there was camouflage, and there were dog tags, and songs about taking back the land. And there had this, at the time, there was a really popular music video. There was some, a guy named Carmen, if you don't know him, don't, don't look him up. Uh, but there was a guy named Carmen, and he had a military song. And uh, I didn't want to look up the name of it because I don't want to screw up my search history. But it was something that had, it was really popular back then. So boot camp was kind of our youth group theme that we were going to go on. And it was there in the midst of the camouflage decorations uh, on a cold, hard floor in a barn in Cincinnati uh, that everything for me came together in a moment. And I made a conscious decision at that point to follow Jesus for the rest of my life. And that was the moment for me. It was also the moment that I felt the calling to ministry. Um, it wasn't an audible voice, thank God. It was a stillness though. It was like a quiet confidence that I knew. Um, I couldn't explain it, but I knew without a doubt that I was called to do something bigger than myself. And in our text today, we get to pull back the curtains on that moment for Jeremiah. But before we go there, I want to take a moment to contextualize kind of this peculiar place that Jeremiah was born. It's probably not a book we spent a lot of time reading, uh, most likely. And if you were ever at like a Bible trivia rock star, like you own the like Trivial Pursuit Bible edition, which exists, if you own that, you probably know the answers to this. Um, but just bear with me for just a second. I'm just going to go through real quickly to contextualize where we're at. So Jeremiah was born in the year 650 around. Um, it's about 100 years since the fall of the Northern Kingdom. And who was the first, let's do this. Who was the first king of Israel? Saul, good job. And John with a quick answer. And <laughs> after John, uh, after Saul, uh, who, who became king? David. David took over. And then David had a son after him, and he became king. His name was? Awesome. Everybody gets gold stars. And John has a box in the back. He can pick a prize. Um, 
But yeah, so Solomon, Solomon was king and he was full of wisdom, lots and lots of wisdom. But along the way, he kind of lost his path. Um, he had a lot of wives, a lot of wives from foreign lands, and they influenced him to turn to idols. He started to worship other idols. He built temples uh, to other idols. And you begin to see in this moment, some cracks begin to form within Israel. There's something bad was gonna happen. And eventually, not long after his death, um, the kingdom gave way and it split into two kingdoms. And you had Israel in the north and you had Judah in the south. Second Kings tells us that Israel, the northern kingdom, they had abandoned their commitments to God and they began to worship other gods like Baal and they began to adopt their practices. So God turned them over, let them have their way with what they wanted to do. And within 200 years, they were exiled by the Assyrians, conquered, and in a moment, 10 of the 12 tribes, we always read about the 12 tribes, 10 of them were wiped out, exiled, sent away. So now we're left with two, two, two of the tribes that are left, and they are in Judah, which is the southern kingdom. Judah had a few things going for it. Number one, uh, they were pretty confident people, uh, and they thought everything was going to be good because they had the Davidic line, right? They had the throne. That's where David sat. That's the throne. And they also had the temple. God was there, so nothing could happen to them. They're good to go. They've got the church and everything. And many of the same things, though, that doomed Israel in the north began to creep into Judah in the south. And it was only a matter of time before they would be undone in the same way. But God loved his people so much, and he longed to bring them to himself. So about 100 years before the demise of, Israel, uh, of Judah, that's where we find this young boy in his early 20s, named Jeremiah, and he had this encounter with God. Does this make sense? You know where we're at now? About 100 years after the fall of the first kingdom, about 100 years before the fall of the second kingdom. So this is where this interaction with, with Jeremiah happens, and God starts this interaction, according to Jeremiah, by saying, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I consecrated you. I appointed you a prophet to the nations. It's a pretty powerful way, right, to start your conversation specifically about a calling way different than mine. Now, this wasn't, when God said he knew him, this wasn't just an intellectual understanding like, I knew you, I saw you, I knew you. This was more than that. It was an awareness of the potential that Jeremiah had of all that he was and could be in the future. And it's important here that to start with this point because Jeremiah needed to know that the Lord doesn't see us like we see ourselves, he stands outside of the constructs of space and time. We see things linear, right? God sees things from the outside perspective. He knows the life, the beginning and the end, the breadth of everything in front of him. He knows the choices we'll make. He ultimately knows all these things, and yet he still engages with us. He interacts with us. He shows immense patience and mercy. That's why the gospel to me is so powerful, because it says that when we were still sinners, Christ knew what we were gonna be and who we were and the choices we would make. He still chose to die for us. He chose to give himself for us and to set us free from death, hell, and the grave. It's a pretty amazing story. That's the gospel. And that message is needed a lot today because we talk about it all the time. Technology has really brought us uh, together in a unique way. It's brought all kinds of unmatched knowledge and information to us. We've got connections with anyone around the world at any moment. But for many people, the side effect of this is intense isolation, completely alone, being surrounded by people all day long and being around no one. That desire to be seen and heard and known can feel so far away for us. Henry Nouwen uh, wrote this book called The Return of the Prodigal Son. It's uh, the story of homecoming and it sums it up really brilliantly and I'm gonna, I'm gonna read this little section for you today. He says this, the world is full of ifs. The world says, yes, I love you if you're good looking, intelligent and wealthy. 
I love you if you have a good education, a good job, and good connections. I love you if you produce much, sell much, and buy much. There's endless ifs hidden in our world's love. The ifs enslave me, since it's impossible to respond adequately to all of them. The world's love is and always will be conditional. As long as we keep looking for my true self in the world of, of conditional love, I will remain hooked to the world, trying, failing, and trying again. It's a world that fosters addiction because what it offers cannot crave, cannot satisfy the deepest cravings of our heart. Pretty powerful. So we go about all kinds of different ways to find this love, to find this uh, feeling accepted. We craft these personas on Instagram. If you've got friends of yours, you know their lives are absolute garbage and they post about how wonderful everything is all the time, right? We all know these people. Um, we take pictures the right way to show everyone how happy we are, how adventurous we are, or at least the way we want people to think that we are. We beef up our LinkedIn profiles to make us look super successful, um, quoting some like Simon Sinek or John Maxwell so we appear relevant. I don't know if they're relevant anymore. They were relevant when I was a little younger. And then we dress in ways that will get us the attention that we crave from other people, right? We wanna get the likes. Uh, we check, the, check to see how many hearts our little post that we just posted is, and we're trying to get attention to feel loved. And yet at the end of the day, when we lay our heads on our pillows and the lights are all dim and that sets in, that longing, it's inherent in us. We want to be authentically ourselves, to drop our guard, to be vulnerable, and to know that we're still loved, to know that we're still chosen. The whole of our lives are laid out before the Lord, our weaknesses, our failures and all, and yet he still loves us intimately. I'm gonna read one quick thing again from Henry Nouwen. For most of my life, I've struggled to find God, to know God, to love God. I've tried hard to follow the guidelines of spiritual life, prayer, work, re reading the scriptures. I've tried to avoid many temptations to dissipate myself. I've failed many times and always tried again, even when I was close to despair. Now I wonder whether I've sufficiently realized that during all this time, God has been trying to find me, to know me, to love me. The question is not how, I am, how am I to find God, but how am I to let myself be found in him? The question is not how am I to know God, but rather how am I to let myself be known by God? And finally, the question is not how am I to love God, but how am I to let myself be loved by God? God is looking into the distance for us, trying to find us and longing to bring us home, to use some prodigal language. To you and I, wherever we are on our faith journeys, the word of the Lord to us today is the same as it was to Jeremiah, that we're seen, that we're not a mistake, and we're not an accident, and no matter what we've done and who we are, we've never gone too far. We are known by God. And that brings us to our second point in the text in Jeremiah, that our inadequacies that we feel don't define who we are. After God tells Jeremiah he's known, he then moves into what he's called to do, and he tells him, I'm going to appoint you as a prophet to the nations. Jeremiah responds, and I'm going to use Eugene Peterson's words because I like them. Uh, he says, hold it, Master God, look at me. I don't know anything. I'm only a boy. Jeremiah is young. He's inexperienced. He's very much aware that he doesn't have what it takes to make it happen, and this is exactly what the Lord looks for. It's exactly what he wants. St. Paul would say some 500 years later that it's in our weaknesses that what happens? 
God is made strong. It's only when we admit that we can't do it on our own, when we let down our guard, when we allow him to take the wheel that we find the provision that we're looking for. And this is Jeremiah's moment. And he doesn't realize it when he says it, but he's in really great company. If you think on some of the the stories throughout the scriptures, this is kind of a constant theme when God calls someone to do something, right? If we think of Abraham and Sarah, right? God called them and he said, Sarah, I know you're old. You're gonna have a kid. You're gonna be the mother of many nations. And how did she respond? She laughed and there's so much in that laugh, right? Because she's an older lady. She knows she's not gonna have kids. And so this was kind of a, a powerful moment for her. You have Moses, when God says, Moses, I'm gonna use you and you're gonna take these people out of Egypt. And Moses responds by saying, who am I? He can't even speak, right? There's no way he could use me. And Mary, a young, young teenage girl, when the Lord meets with her and says, you're gonna give birth to the savior. And she says, she knows how kids are made and she knows that, that, that it couldn't happen. So she's confused, right? And she responds and says, how can this be? And each time in each of these instances, God's not upset with us because we have doubts or because we're nervous or scared. God's response in each of these situations is to let them know that he's with them and that he supports them. Not to be afraid, they just need to be faithful where they are. So let's talk about Jeremiah's faithfulness for a minute. What does faithfulness look like to him? God tells him it looks like going where he leads him speaking what he tells him and doing it all without fear, trusting that the Lord is with him. So God was sending him out to a people who were losing their way and he wanted to warn them, you've got to change, you've got to do something because the end is coming if you don't make the changes. Remember we talked about earlier, they had Jerusalem, they had the temple. They even had prophets. When you read later on in Jeremiah, there were all these prophets going, everything's fine, everything's fine. It reminds me, there's a a meme of Leslie Nielsen standing in front of a giant fire explosion. He's like, nothing to see here. And there's like explosions going on behind him. So there were these prophets and these prophets were telling them, "Don't, don't worry about it. We've got the temple, we're safe. We go to church, we pray, we do all the right things. We're gonna be fine, don't worry about it. They thought they were safe, but if you lifted the floorboards a little bit, and you looked underneath, there was rot growing underneath. The poor, aliens and strangers, foreigners that would visit their land, they were being mistreated. The politicians, the religious leaders were corrupt all the way to the heart. Uh, They would worship God in the streets and they would ignore the poor. Or they would worship God in the temple and they would do sacrifices to other gods outside of the temple. There were big issues happening. They weren't living out to the calling that they had. So faithfulness for Jeremiah meant spending his entire life pleading with those around him, please change your ways. God told him he would pluck up, pull down. He would destroy and overthrow the structures or behaviors that were causing them to lose sight, right, of where they had to go. But in the end, ultimately, God finishes up his calling by saying, you're also gonna rebuild and plant. So in the midst of all the tearing down and destroying, there's also some hope that in the end, there's gonna be a rebuilding and a planting. So what about us? I don't think many of us, maybe not, are called for 40 or 50 years. Uh, He said the same thing for 50 years, running around a country and doing really weird things. If you read the book, there's some weird things that Jeremiah does. He buries his underwear once. This is a true story. You guys know this story. I told my mom this and she said, no way that's in the Bible. It's true. He buried his underwear. Well, he wore them first, got them really dirty. Then he buried them. And then later on, God told him to dig up his underwear and to show it to everyone and say, this is you, you're good for nothing. Like, that's such an awesome, weird story, but it happened, right? Those are the kind of weird things that God tells Jeremiah to do. And we're not called to live like that, I hope not, uh, for many of us. But I would say first and foremost, God is calling you and I 
to live as faithful Christians, faithful people. And for each one of us, that type of faithfulness looks a little bit different. Uh, But it starts not in super flashy ways, but it starts in our homes and those that we share life with. And I could tell you from experience, uh, and I know you know this too, it's hard uh, to be faithful at home uh, in a big way. You know, it's, uh, I fail at this one all the time because it's easier to craft an image with people that you only see every now and then, right? You see someone every now and then, and you know this if you've ever started dating someone and you think at first like, oh, this person's pretty cool. And I remember telling friends like, oh, this girl's amazing. This, she's the best ever. And within eight minutes, I'm like, oh no. And so there's this kind of like, you get to know them, something startles them and you get to see the real person underneath. And then you're like, oh no, because we craft an image and we can hold that up for a little while, but at some point it falls. And no one knows that better than our families, uh, which is why we don't get along with our families a lot uh, because there's a lot of, they know us more than anyone and the things about them that irritate us, it's all there. So it's, it's a little bit different. It's entirely different when we live in our homes and we live this out, but it's in those spaces and those places of intimacy that the real business of discipleship takes place. Like Jeremiah I'm in constant need of the Lord to touch my mouth and put words in there because the words that come out aren't always the best words. And so we always need to pray that the Lord will help us be who we're supposed to be at home. I heard a quote recently, and I'm gonna absolutely butcher this quote because I I didn't really look it up, but I remember reading something around uh, not looking for the future final state of who we're supposed to be as the goal, but looking to be a little better tomorrow than we were today. So for me, that's to love, to forgive, to show mercy a little bit more every single day. And we do these layup drills, we do these at home with our family and with our friends. I recently read The Deeply Formed Life. It's a book by Rich Velotis, and I absolutely love him. And um, he talks about this, uh, about what it means to be faithful, and I can't stop thinking about it. It's been the prayer that I've been praying for, for, for a hot minute. What he says is this, we need to cultivate a spirit of being lovingly present, is the word that he uses And through that very small act, we begin to join God on his journey of remaking the world. And I love the prayer that he prays, so I'm gonna pray it over all of us. This is the prayer he said to pray every day. Teach me to be lovingly present to my family and to anyone you put in my path today. Amen. Teach me to be lovingly present to my family and to anyone you put in my path today. This is a very small part of what it means to be the hands and feet of Jesus, to be salt and light, but it's a good start. And just as God uh, assured Jeremiah that he could live this out, live this calling out because he was with him, we have a beautiful echo as well in the words of Jesus at the end of the gospel of St. Matthew where he tells his disciples as he sends them out to uncertainty, remember that I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Now there's so much more in this text of Jeremiah than we could get into this morning. Um, There's a ton to unpack Um, And if you have the margins, it's really good to spend time with Jeremiah. It's a really interesting text with some interesting stories. But as you read, I encourage you to challenge yourself to ask the Lord, what are the areas or the beliefs or the values or the rhythms that you have in your life? What are those structures that you deal with that need to be torn down? What fruit do you see in your garden, which is a good check engine light? Because some of us have some gnarly fruit that need to be pulled up from the roots and all. But don't just stop there. Jeremiah continues on, right? There's rebuilding to do. There's planting that needs to take place in our lives. The renewing work of the spirit makes us into the type of people that are marked and known by humility or love. Those are the things that need to be coming out of our gardens. 
the type of people that don't allow themselves to become so arrogant like Israel in our text today, that we think just because we go to church and we say the right things, or maybe we even don't do the bad things, that somehow we're good to go because we know where that ends. There's a big world full of people and they're longing for hope. And if we live this thing out well, if we are faithful, if we can accept the fact that we're loved and be faithful to what God's called us to do, other people will be drawn in, specifically as we move the church to this new space and we're in a new community and we put down deep roots. It's really important that we live that out. If we're out at a restaurant having dinner or if we're out with friends having drinks, that we're always being salt and light in those environments that we're in. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Lord Christ, we're so grateful for you, for your calling, for you assuring us that we are known. God, that we're called to be faithful where we are. And we're, show, and we're called to show your love. God, give us an assurance that you are with us, no matter what we're going through in our lives, in our families, with addiction, with, with loneliness, with depression, with anything we're struggling with, God. Give us a sense and an understanding as we take the Eucharist today that you're with us. In your name we pray.